0: Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. This episode combines two of my favorite things: learning about a subject which I know almost nothing about, and a guest who is sharing new ways to think about the experience of ordinary people, all too often overlooked in written historical records. This is a major problem with relying on written history. In most times and places, people who created these accounts were wealthier and better educated than those who didn't. They were also usually men, but people also tell stories through things. For generations, Maine women told stories through quilts, defining community, joining families, interpreting and commemorating events, both personal and political. we learn when we pay closer attention to them it's time to blanket the airwaves with historical knowledge so let's do this Guest today is Lori Labar, curator of history and decorative arts at the Maine State Museum. Labar has curated a number of exhibits for the uh, State Museum, as well as at the Maine State House and the Passamaquoddy Indian Township School. She co authored Uncommon Threads Wabanaki Textiles, Clothing, and Costume with Bruce Bork and has written a forthcoming book. Maine Quilts, 250 Years of Comfort and Community, out this spring. Lori, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ian. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you.
0: I've noticed as a connoisseur of exhibits, but an an amateur about quilts, that the curators such as yourself are commonly using wordplay on threads and, of course, fabric of our lives for your exhibits Mm -hmm. And so as my my humble, in-kind contribution, I've come up with other titles on (laughs) loan for your museum. Oh, great. So the first is Quilt by Association.
1: Oh, I love Um, that.
0: And then It's Hip to Be Your Square. Um, (laughs) More specifically, uh, Sewing Their Wild Coats for people who are sewing festive coats. And then finally, My So-Called Life for the 90s Throwback Crowds. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so so do with those what you will. And it is so great to have you here. Thanks. My first really basic question for you though, for some of our uninitiated, what makes a quilt a quilt rather than a blanket?
1: Well, technically a quilt is a sandwich. So a quilt has a top and a back and it has batting and it's sewed together. But that said, Sometimes a quilt is not a sandwich. Sometimes it's just sewn, the, the, the top is just sewn right to a foundation and it doesn't have any batting as, as what the, the, the middle layer is called. The peanut butter layer, if you will, of the sandwich is called batting. And those are technically comforters or coverlets, but we call them you know, we call them quilts. So crazy quilts, for example, you know, they're, they're called quilts, but they don't have any batting. Um, so, but the purists say that it's that sandwich where you have a top and a middle and a back and they're all sewn together.
0: Oh, okay. Thank you for that. So you have written a history of 250 years of quilting in Maine. If I may ask, does your work begin with the first surviving quilts or was that when quilting really became popular in Maine about 250 years ago.
1: Quilts were really popular in Maine as soon as Euro-Americans set foot on the place. Euro-American women, as soon as they set foot in Maine, quilts were popular. But a lot of quilts, for example, if you look at Laura Thatcher Ulrich's book about Martha Ballard, for example, she talks about her daughters working on quilts. But what she's probably talking about is quilted petticoats. Because if you think about it, having an insulated skirt in Maine winter is probably a good idea. And a lot of the quilts that are early are gone. They got used up. So the earliest quilts in the Maine State Museum collection are from probably the late 1700s. Some of the fabrics were from the 1750s. But for example, one quilt's from 1830s. This was, they they recycled, they recycled a great grandmother or a grandmother's wedding dress into a quilt, but the other fabrics are from the 1830s. So, you know, it has to date from the 1830s or later.
0: So what community produced the oldest fabric that you have in your collections, even if it went into a later quilt?
1: Well, there's two of them that are vying for this title of earliest main quilt. And one of them would be the Biddeford area, Saco and Biddeford, because the family was in both places. And that's the one that had a 1750s fabric that was put into an 1830s quilt. So that's probably the safest bet, is the Biddeford-Saco area. However, there's another one where that has fantastic early fabrics and the, the background is all a very dark printed um, block print. And in the middle is what you call um, copper plate engravings, so it's, it's just a different technique. And that one says it's from Troy, but Troy wasn't founded then. East Troy didn't exist when this fabric was made. And so probably it got brought to Troy by early settlers and we don't know where from.
0: So you're mentioning already uh, different eras. And of course, Mm -hmm. historians love to periodize things. Mm -hmm. So if you you were going to periodize the major eras in Maine quilting uh, that you're familiar with, how would you do that?
1: Well, I have done it by by separating them into sort of colonial style and then a revolution of, there's a revolution that happens. There's several revolutions that happens. There's the American revolution, there's the industrial revolution and within the industrial revolution, there's a print revolution. So I've grouped them by colonial styles which actually goes into the 1820s which is when we become a state. But meanwhile, um, we still have a lot of British influence here and then an industrial revolution And then there's an antebellum period where there's all kinds of different things are happening in terms of women's groups. There's a lot of action that happens in the 1840s in terms of women's social activities and women's causes. So there are um, a lot of album quilts that happen where these groups are are engaged in um, helping better society at the same time that they happen to be making quilts. And then, of course, there's the Civil War. And each of these time periods have really unusual features about their quilts. And then, of course, after the Civil War, the Industrial Revolution and fabric in particular just goes bananas. And so you have just an onslaught of inexpensive cottons, which then just get made into really boingy quilts, because the more variety you have, the more cheap fabric you have, the more fabric you use. So that's, that's sort of how I separate out the different eras of quilts up until around 1900.
0: Within those periods, what are some major fashion shifts or innovations in quilting that stand out to
1: you? Well, one of the things too that I just wanted to mention is that you you can see reflections of sort of more classic periods in quilting. So for example, in wool quilts, you can see early wool quilts from around 1800 to 1820. You can see a shift from Baroque styles to federal styles, if you will, or to more classical styles. But in terms of hallmarks of these different periods, a lot of it has to do with the fabric because the textile technology is changing so rapidly at the time that you can identify quilts by era or by, even by decade. And things that we don't think about today, that sort of a stereotypical thing where all quilts, every, everything, all the colors, all the clothing, everything is boring and brown. And yet in the 1830s, I mean, the colors were like the 1970s. There was this paint explosion. And you get these crazy pinks and oranges and yellows right next to each other and wild shades of green. And so that's really a real fun era if you like to have your assumptions challenged. Um, And then later on, of course, as I explained, you've got just incredible variety of things going on. So it's really just looking at at the fabrics and then kind of thinking about what was going on. There's something funny going on, for example, in the early 20th century. If you think about the colors that you see in 1900 quilts, 1900 to 1910, and the colors you look at in the the roaring 20s, they're completely different. Well, that's because... There was this little thing that happened in between those things, which is called World War One. And since most of the dye companies were in Germany, all of a sudden, if you think about it, there's this fashion for white clothing in women or white, black and white clothing. And that's because nobody had access to the dyes. You couldn't get them. So suddenly black and white's fashionable. And then American chemists pick up the slack after the war and they make this whole new series of chemical dyes. And one of the things that's different about these chemical dyes is that they are designed with electric lights in mind. And so it's a color shift and you have a whole new suite of exciting colors. So these are the types of things that I'm looking at as I look at quilts. Hmm.
0: You mentioned already that it's usually, it's women doing the quilting. Uh, Mostly. Mostly. Given that, is there a shift over time in which women and what sorts of women are doing the quilting over the decades?
1: Yes, I would say that there is because um, in the early 1800s, this has to do with the economy of family economy. So until the 1840s, say, you know, most families' economies are home-based. And then a lot of young girls start going to mills that ordinarily would have been home on the farm. And so a lot of those same women that you see Martha Ballard talking about working on quilts and working on bed quilts, quilts being petticoats and bed quilts being bed quilts, obviously. A lot of those girls were not at home and they were not working on quilts at the time. So that does shift. Another thing that you can see is in quilts is that sometimes you will have very traditional style of quilts in a more up-to-date fabric, or you'll have a very traditional quilting, maybe not the style of the quilt itself, but the quilting style would be very, very old fashioned, depending on what you're looking at. And so that I think has to do with like an older woman making quilts. So maybe you have something that's completely hand pieced that's from 1880, Well, a lot of younger women would be picking up the sewing machine at that point, but an older woman might be hand sewing. Or you have a woman in 1830 who's still using Baroque quilting patterns on her whole cloth quilt. And whole cloth quilts are pretty passe by then anyway, but uh, rural people are still making them. So those are the types of things that you can see about who's still making quilts and how to tell who's making quilts.
0: I'm glad you bring that up because I think that's something that often gets lost when we think about fashions broadly in, in history, the assumption that in earlier eras that, oh, you know, it's the, it's the 1780s, so people must be dressed in the fashion of the 1780s as opposed right. to how people actually are, which is there's plenty of people who like the older fashions and are still yeah. wearing them. You know, there's the equivalent of people still wearing cargo pants uh, exactly. well after, well, well after they, they go out of style or what have you. Glad you you brought that up. Quilting has been both uh, an expression of high fashion as well as a supposedly sort of authentic expression of, of folk art at different times. Is this associated with who is doing quilting at the time? Does this tell us something about notions of class, or is there something else at work?
1: Wow, these are that's three really amazing in-depth things that I could sort of dive into let's see so fashion versus folk art I think a lot of times fashion versus folk art in quilts really has to do with who's doing it and yes fashion does play a part if you look at album quilts which are quilts that are made by lots of different women and so each one is each block is probably different not always sometimes they all agree on a common block but a lot of album quilts in Maine it's just like they just somebody just threw everybody just through completely different patterns together and they don't really care if anything coordinates but that's definitely folk art whereas in Baltimore an album quilt in the 1840s was something very controlled very precise very much um, there was very much a fashion for it and it was made by professionals and then picked up by high society women whereas here it was people who were in all different aspects of society so sometimes it's also that uh, people who were living on farms were still making certain styles a little bit later than the cities were. Another thing, of course, is that the women's magazines would rail against the sort of commonness of, for example, of piecework. And they would rail against this patchwork, these patchwork quilts and how common they were when, So let's say that it's 1830 and you have a whole bunch of new fabrics and somebody's excited about putting these things together into a quilt and the women's magazines are saying, oh honey, that is just, that's only worth doing for servants. If you really want a good quality quilt, you're using it all of one fabric and it's probably a pillar print. So you do see those two different types of conversations going on. And for the most part, you see women completely ignoring whatever it is that the women's magazines are are saying. They ranted and raved about how de classe crazy quilts were. First, they thought they were wonderful. And once everybody was doing them, they really thought they were just way too overblown. And women just kept on making them and they're still making them.
0: I think there's something really charming about that in the sense of there's other really popular trends, be it fashion or or whatever, Mm -hmm. that tastemakers mock and yet people insist on doing anyway because it's comfortable or they just they (laughs) like it you know
1: crocs Crocs or just
0: the (laughs) uh the fact that like uh, i think it was paul blart mall cop brought in like way more money than any of the oscar nominees (laughs) for best picture that year you know stuff like that i mean i think as historians it's really important for us to pay attention to the equivalent of like, yes, you wanna look at the Academy of Awards of what you're doing, but you also need to pay attention to the Paul Blarts uh, of different eras too, if you wanna understand Absolutely. what people are doing. Um, and
1: that's one of the really fun things about material culture. So material culture, for people who think that's like two strange words that don't really belong together, it's just refers to stuff. It's the things that we use every day. And the wonderful thing about material culture is that it fills in gaps. It is the mall cop. It is the stuff that doesn't make the headlines. So quilts, for example, I'm talking about reading the fabrics and, and extracting information from the fabrics of these quilts. And this is, these are things that you're not gonna see written down. You're not gonna see anywhere in histories because women's lives just didn't matter to the people who are writing the histories. So anything I can extract from these I think, is a contribution of being able to see not just not just the Oscar winners, but everybody who's out there.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because something you said to me in an earlier conversation I was hoping you could expand on, you mentioned that you considered, in particular, 19th century quilts in Maine communities as a sort of parallel history of these towns where there's this rich genre of New England town histories, and it's written overwhelmingly by and for men, especially prominent white men. Women rarely warrant mention in these histories unless they're married to somebody famous or, you know, otherwise attached to his, uh, him by family. And that you, right. you view these, these quilts as a, a sort of parallel history of these communities. Could you please elaborate on that and maybe give us some examples that you found? Sure.
1: Sure. I mean, it happens in quilts, but it also happens in on paper. I mean, if you take a look again, we'll go back to Martha Ballard's diary. There was a book published about that years and years ago. But the author was a man. He was not interested in any of the daily life things. He was just interested in these town history high points. And yet Laurel comes in, reads it with a different eye and finds all kinds of information about it. And so it's the same type of a thing, but these are not documents. Let's go back to Cumberland Center. So there is a, we found a collection, a friend of mine and I are both working on this project. And we found 10 quilts from a five-year period that were made by a women's group the Lady Sewing Circle of the Cumberland Center Congregational Church. And if you, so I'm trying to do my background information, trying to do a lot of research on these quilts. And I'm looking at all these town histories and there's nothing, there's nothing about the women. And then the town historian kind of just pipes up, you know, they used to call this road G street because there weren't any men. The men were all, they had all gone to sea, they were ship captains, they had died. The whole street was just house after house after house of women living there. And if you look at the church records, the people who are members of the church are all women. So the women are actually running everything in the town except of course the government, but there and, and this bunch of quilts really reflects that. And it's very exciting to see all the different names on them that we have about 220 something names on these 10 quilts. And so we're actually able to to start teasing out relationships and who is central to the community and who is more peripheral to the community who has ties outside the community that are close enough that they are contributing blocks to somebody else's quilt so so far we we have about 39 quilts from this era for Cumberland county in general and there's only about four names that appear on other quilts and it's also interesting that Three miles down the road from the Cumberland Center Congregational Church, there is a little, another little church. And they also made, at the same time period, they also made a quilt. And there are no names in common, but it doesn't take a researcher to, to see that these are not related. If just Just looking at this t- group of 10 quilts that this one group did and this other quilt, they look nothing alike. You know, the, the color scheme is different, the motifs are different, it's really interesting to see how these little compartmentalized parts of this town are working and not working, just through the quilts.
0: Have you encountered any quilts that seem to commemorate specific events, whether it's shipwrecks or fires or religious revivals, events of great meaning to that particular community?
1: I have actually. Um, they aren't anything, perhaps as dramatic as a shipwreck, but I have. We do have one in our collection. Actually, it's a recent arrival that was made to honor the sale of a ship. The ship's captain and, and partial owner was a Norwegian man named Charles Moosehouse. He was born Carl Moosehouse, and his ship was also called the Norwegian. And so that that one is to commemorate the Norwegian. We have other quilts that for example, came into a family because they lost their home. And when the family lost their home and they rebuilt, the neighbors brought in quilts and things like that. So we have one of those, Mm. which still goes on all the time. And of course, there's no way to know unless the history of the quilt survives. There's no way to know because nobody wrote on the back, this was for Bertha and, 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 and Robert when they lost their house. They're just giving them a quilt. And then, of course, during the Civil War, we have some pretty amazing quilts that you, you find as well. Were
0: there regimental quilts, sort of like regimental flags, where the women of a town would, would make some sort of a commemorative quilt?
1: Yes, they're, women of a town, yes. I haven't found any of, oh, actually, post-war, we have women that are associated with the... Grand Army of the Republic, there was the the Women's Auxiliary for that. They made some quilts too. But during the war, communities were making quilts for several reasons. Some women just made them because they felt strongly. We have a couple of those uh, represented. And then groups of women would make quilts, usually for fundraising or to send to have them be in a, um, you know, in a hospital type of thing. So they would go on a soldier's bed. And there are several of those. Some of them are quite well documented. For example, there's one from Bethel that's at the Bethel Historical Society, where um, it, 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 was, it disappeared, of course. They sent it to Washington, D.C., never to be seen again. And, then it, and somebody who participated in its making late in the century talked about it. And then, about ten years ago, it surfaced in Montana, of all places. And so that has come back home. We have one in our collection that's spectacular, and it was a group of of young women, women who were probably in their twenties and then in their teens. So it was the students, the alumni, and the staff of a woman's of a girls' school in Portland that made it. And in that case, they inscribed every single square, every single block. And it's just full of inscriptions and also the dates of when they were making it. So they were making it in late May and June of 1864. And at least one of the quotations that we have found that has been put on it wasn't published until May of 1864. So quilts like that sort of tell you how well-read people were. Like these women are reading what's new and what's being, which is brand new, which has been published. And then they're citing it on these quilts.
0: Have you encountered quilts for, for example, from temperance societies or supporting anti-slavery or or women's rights Mm -hmm. causes in the 19th century?
1: I have, but not from Maine, not yet. And I can't claim to have seen all the quilts made in Maine. There's no way. I mean, I've only seen, I probably only see a couple thousand of them and you know they were making them by the gazillion. So I haven't seen any with any Maine temperance ones yet, but I'm sure they're out there. Again, it may be that Unless the iconography of the quilt has has temperance motifs in it, I might not recognize it unless unless there's an inscription. So if it's, for example, if it's a fundraiser, but there's nothing obviously temperance, like there's not the, there's no hatchets, there's no mm. T's and all that kind of thing, I might not recognize it. But the quilts that were made, there's two quilts. One is from Saco and one is from waterville and they're a year apart and they're the same pattern and they both uh, luckily the history of them has survived and so they're both made by the women's auxiliary for the women's relief course what it was called for the grand army of the republic which was the union veterans of the civil war so these were fundraiser quilts that were made by them and luckily the history survives and they're just fans with names in them and so each person would the veins of the fan all have names written on them. In the case of one, if they're handwritten, in the case of the other, they're embroidered after they were written in pencil. So each person would give some money for the honor of having their name on a vein. Or if they wanted to give a lot of money, they might have their whole family put on separate veins and you know pay more than money for that. So that iconography doesn't tell me that it's GAR or that it's Women's Relief Corps. It's just the names that are on it and the stories that have stayed with it have tell me what it is. Hmm.
0: Many of these agricultural communities in the United States got very competitive about raising the biggest pig or growing the biggest pumpkin or what have you. Was there a competitive streak among Maine quilters where you encountered maybe an attempt to make the biggest quilt?
1: There's definitely competition, definitely competition, but it isn't so much size, as it is number of blocks. So they com- competed to see how many blocks they could fit in, this, in, a, in a quilt, so how small their little components would get. And it became quite fashionable. In fact, it has a name now, it's called, they're called the postage stamp quilts. And s- nationwide, things got absolutely insane. And interestingly enough, this is where men got involved in the late 1800s when it comes to quilting. Some of these guys thought, oh, I can make a quilt that has more blocks than that. Even though they'd probably never picked up a needle in their life, unless they were (laughs) students and lost a button and didn't have any other choice. So they hadn't probably picked up a needle since then. So some guys did pick up and, and, and make these very elaborate quilts. And here in Maine, they weren't as elaborate as they were elsewhere. But we do have uh, quite a few quilts that have these little tiny blocks and one of them in fact is made by a man Hmm. the only quilt i have in the main state museum collection that's made by a man is one of these with these tiny little quilts it has it's called a tumbler block and so if you think of the shape of a tumbler that's the shape of the basic square of this quilt and those little tumblers are an inch and a half high by an inch wide and there's thousands of them sewn
0: into a quilt. Wow. I, <laughs> I, I love this story. I just, I never imagined that somebody would just get that like, all right, I'm going to show all of you. <laughs> and so this tiny, tiny series of postage stamp squares in this quilt. Take that world. Um, exactly. In the, in the history of Maine quilting, did anybody become really famous? Are there any major great names of, of quilting in Maine?
1: Well, I certainly think right now there are. We have contemporary quilters who are known nationwide and we are just bringing one quilt by one such couple into our collection. It's the Frass Slade couple is their their name, Gail Frass and Duncan Slade. They've been quilting since the seventies. And so the first exhibit of quilts in the country in 1976 that sort of brought back this idea of quilting as actually just sort of invented the idea of quilting as an art form they were invited to that exhibit and then they were also featured in the uh, quilt exhibit that brought to the word art quilt into common use and they're still making wonderful quilts and we're bringing one of them a wall quilt it's about four feet high Uh, we're bringing that into our collection right now and then there's an exhibit I'll talk about something later um, there's a woman who makes just incredible neo-traditional quilts and she's also known nationwide. And there's other women who are making, mostly it's women in Maine, who are making quilts that win prizes at national shows all across the country. Hmm. But we don't have any sort of historic quilts where we want the, the Jane Doe quilt because she just did all these wonderful quilts. We don't have anything like that. Okay. Um, yeah. Was
0: there any town that achieved particular fame or notoriety? As being a quilting powerhouse at any point, like oh yes, those the women of Waldo, Maine, or you know something like that.
1: Well, really, I don't know how it was contemporary to their contemporaries. I do not know that. Okay. Um, I know that that for me right now, it's the the center of the universe seems to be Cumberland, Maine. <laughs> but uh, there's a, we have a lot of qu- those 10 quilts from Cumberland from that one five year period, they were prodigious. And then of course Portland, but because Portland is the biggest town. right. So of course we have more quilts from there right.
0: So you being better positioned than almost anybody looking at this quarter millennia of maine quilting, I mean quilting in general, thinking about 21st century quilting, what aspects of it seem to be a continuity? from earlier eras that you notice, And then maybe what features of 21st century quilting seem to be new and new innovations?
1: There's several themes that I think still are found in contemporary quilts, including art quilts, as well as all these historic quilts. And that, is that there's several different approaches to quilting. One is somebody just wants something warm for the bed. One is that somebody is comforted by traditional patterns and wants to do something that's either faithfully a a traditional pattern or is a riff off of a traditional pattern. And then the last one is people are just trying something new and are, are, are seeing quilts as a means of expression. And that's where Maine's art quilt community is, is at that end of that scale. So I think it's fun that in every single one of these time periods, you have people who are doing really innovative things, as well as people who are doing very traditional things. But what I think sets this time period apart is just the um, array of media that people have access to. So all kinds of new... Materials are being incorporated. Technologies are being incorporated. I I sort of broaden my idea of what is a quilt from just the layer cake of or the sandwich of the three layers to being things that, for example, there's a woman, Jude Spax, who lives in Belfast, who makes the most astonishing quilts. And her website is Cloth Eye. And she makes these quilts and each eye of each person or animal that she does a portrait of, each eye could have 25 pieces of fabric in it. These things are just astonishing. And yet they might not be considered a quilt traditionally because she has layers and layers and layers of almost a collage of fabric, but it is still, I think, a quilt. But she also incorporates paint into her quilts. But that's also something that's traditionally done. If you look at crazy quilts from the 1890s, people are painting all over them. So yeah, paint is I think counts as a as a form. But I think one thing that we're going to find is we're going to find some of the modern techniques are not going to hold up over time because I think they're going, there's going to be some inherent vice as we call it. For example, we have a quilt that was made by a group of women veterans and one of them has glitter glue on it. One of the blocks. <laughs> well, you know, that's probably not going to hold up well.
0: Are there discernible regional styles in quilting uh, in particular in early America was somebody like you able to say ah yes this is a Maine or New England quilt versus a a Carolina low country style or or something else
1: oh yeah um especially when you we're, we're looking at sort of the south versus up here the south did a lot of things like they had very a lot of times they'd have very wide sashing in between blocks that kind of thing and so you can never say you can you can almost never look at a quilt and say, "Oh my gosh, this is a Maine quilt," but sometimes you can. And a lot of times, for example, in the 1840s, a lot of a lot of people in Maine, a lot of women in Maine, would make a block. So a block being a little one one of these squares within a quilt, and they would make the block. Let's say it's a nine patch. It has nine blocks that have alternating colors. And it's just you're pretty much nine patch. Then they'd put a border around it or they put two borders around it. So these weird borders within the quilt blocks is a, is a real main thing. There's another technique that is pretty common in Maine. It's a New England technique, but Maine is probably the epicenter of it. And that is what's called today is called, it's part of, the, today they call it a quilt as you go technique. And a friend of mine Dubbed it a potholder technique. And that because every block looks like a potholder. Every block gets finished completely and then they get stitched together, usually with a whip stitch. In and so that the epicenter of that is in Maine. Another thing that happens a lot in Maine is you get something called a cut corner. And sometimes these used to be called T-shaped quilts, but they're not really T-shaped quilts. They just have empty corners. So the corners weren't cut out either. The quilt was planned this way. But so if you're looking at a quilt, there's this little, it's sort of a, there's this, just these two empty corners at the bottom. And that's so that it can go neatly over uh, a bed that has bedposts. So it goes around the bedposts very neatly. Those are all things that are classic main examples. And so, for example, we have one. We have a quilt from the 1840s. It was funny. It was supposed to be, came in and it was said that it was from down uh, from Bristol, South Bristol. And it has its potholder. It has cut corners. It has over half of its blocks have these funny little extra borders that, you know, why are they there? I don't know. And so that is as made a quilt as you can possibly get from the mid-century. And then it turned out that it turned out actually not to be from from Bristol. It turned out to be from Dresden, which is where I live. It was very fun. I was able, once I realized what the spelling errors were, because people were interpreting stuff that's written on a quilt. So if you think of how hard it is to read cursive, some people have a real hard time with cursive, but then this is not on paper. This is on fabric. So it is much harder to read. And uh, once I figured out what the typos were, as it were, the, the, the misinterpretations were, I was able to actually go to the grades of some of these women, which was really a treat. So yes, long story short, yes, there are definitely main themes. Um, long story short, there are definitely some traits that may, are main quilts, but not all main quilts look like that.
0: Gotcha. So, having curated this extensive collection, what is your favorite quilt that you, you guys ask have that. in your collection?
1: This is so hard. What is my favorite quilt? What is your favorite child? <laughs> um, it really depends on what I am thinking about at the moment. But I do have—I have something. I do have a favorite that, among my favorites, this is this is one of them. it. Was made in eighteen sixty-eight by a woman named Anne Drain Cotter from Alexander, Maine. And her daughter was quite young when she made it, but she remembered it vividly. And then she was quite old when she gave us her mother's quilt. And so we have her mother's, she had the recollection of her mother making the quilt. And she made it, it's all these crazy colors again. It's like Peter Max was a time traveler and went to rural down East Maine in the 1860s there are moons and stars in bright colors. There are flowers and funky things that got folded in four like snowflakes. And she, instead of just using sort of stylized leaves, she actually went and got leaves from her geranium and got leaves from her maple tree. And, and then she made some of these really wonderful abstract birds that she put in it. So it's just a wonderful quilt. And the fact that it looks like Peter Max did some time travel and went Mm. down there, did something psychedelic in the 1860s, just makes it all the more wonderful.
0: Yeah. So our conversations about popular culture and and what people are attached to made me curious. Drawing from my own family's experience, we are not high artists, but some very treasured family hand-me-downs from my mother's side are these plastic canvas Christmas ornaments oh, yeah. stitched with yarn. And yeah. uh, I don't know. So you know what plastic canvas is. And I don't, not classic, everybody.
1: Classic, <laughs> classic church Christmas fair, fair.
0: Yes. Yeah. And Adeline Richard. Yeah. So she was, she was Born in probably in the 1910s or something like that. And so she was she was making these forever. And so we have all these plastic canvas Christmas ornaments. And so I'm thinking you guys must get all sorts of donations or come across things that have enormous meaning for different families. But I'm wondering then if there's another sort of folk art object, whether it's plastic. Do you guys have any plastic canvas? in your collections?
1: Boy, you know, I'm not sure. I know we have some Christmas ornaments, but I'm not as familiar with those. So we might, but if we do, we only have one or two.
0: Okay. Audience, look it up if you don't know plastic canvas. <laughs> so then if not plastic canvas, is there, what is another type of, of folk art that you're really fond of that in the state museum collections?
1: Well, in terms of some of the folk art, we have some fabulous hooked rugs. Fabulous wow. hooks, r- hooked rugs. God. Waldeboro, Maine was the center of a style of hooked rug that was definitely many levels of talent and skill more complex than most hooked rugs. But so we have, we have several of those. They were made with finer yarns. They were sculpted. So they're three-dimensional. And a lot of them were never worn because they were like, this was their, your Sunday, go to meet and rag rug. This was not the sort of put it in front of the wood stove, rag, rag rug. These things were exquisitely made. Hmm. And then we have, we have a collection. There was a guy down in the Scarborough area who, his name was Frost. And he was just, he was a salesman and he would go to people's houses. And one thing that he realized is that a lot of the rag rugs were really crap. They were just ugly. Women did not know how to draw. And so they had these wild, bizarre ideas of how to draw things. So well, we would Today, we would say, <laughs> oh, this is priceless folk art. This is wonderful. But he yes. just thought it was disgusting. So he changed his whole career and wound up making patterns for hooked rugs. We actually have his, his zinc templates, these stencils for the rugs. And we have a lot of his rugs, too. So we have the whole range. We have wonderful folk art ones. We have frost ones. And we also of course have the Waldeboro rugs. Hmm. Oh, I have to tell you about another, I have to tell you about another favorite because I've told you about these exquisite quilts, but I have to tell you about another one of my favorite and it's such an ugly duckling. It's it's really a quilt only a mother could love. It's a type of thing when we took it in, I just grit my teeth and I said, I need to look at that. I could always discard it later. I would not let my dog sleep on this quilt. Hmm. And we took it in and I could tell that there was something under this quilt. And as I started sort of poking around where things were ripped and broken, I realized that this had been a century before. This had been a very high end whole cloth quilt made from really expensive, really fancy wool. And then as it sort of degraded, it became less popular. It became less fashionable. Somebody put something over it and then somebody put something over it again. And it wound up in the servants quarters and it wound up getting cut down. But whoever cut it down, saved some of the pieces. It's insane. It's really wonderful. When you look at this sorry, sorry quilt to see this incredible jacquard fabric underneath it. The finest wool quilt I've seen Hmm. it would have been had it survived. I am.
0: A, a real sucker for ugly amateur art from earlier <laughs> eras. I that is a true weakness of mine. That's like one of my favorite things. Stay tuned, audience. Want- we yeah. are uh, we're we have a, a later a guest later this spring, Diana Griswold at the the Portland Museum of Art. Uh, we'll be talking about vernacular traveling folk painters. I'm sure some of them were really talented, but I'm really hoping that we can focus on some of the, the ones who weren't very good. I love coming across these ugo paintings that are just asymmetrical and lumpy and unbalanced that some family paid somebody to draw for them.
1: We have a wonderful uh, portrait, and I'm afraid I can never remember the subject's name. I refer to it as the Sausage Finger Lady. <laughs> Because her poor her face looks fine, but her hands, they're just like little sausage fingers.
0: Oh, there's a commemorative plate I've seen, and it was it was made to commemorate King James II of England, who, who only so he only reigned for three years. He he was Catholic and so they they chucked him out, but that's a story for another day. Uh, they chucked him out in 1688, and there's this plate of him, and he just looks very misshapen and unfortunate and it looks like he's suffering from all sorts of health problems in this plate but it's just this amateur artist who wanted to (laughs) depict the king and it's this homemade art that I could have done and I was not a good uh, a good artist Um, so yeah I love those and so those are always fun. Turning our uh, our attention to your collection, the Main State Museum is going through a period of repair and renewal. Could you update our listeners on what's going on at the Main State Museum, where people can see parts of collections and things and how to stay up to date on reopenings and how to stay involved?
1: Very good. Thank you for thinking of that. The Main State Museum, of course, we closed for COVID and then we reopened. And then two weeks later, our heating system died. Now, we knew that the heating system was on its way out. So the state had, thank heaven, set some money aside and we were in the early stages of planning for it. But of course, because of its sudden demise, it meant everything had to shut down. So we're, we're closed now to the public and it's not just us, it's the entire building. As some of you know, we share a building with the Maine State Library and the Maine State Archives. And so at the moment, everyone is moving um, their collections out The library is moving books, the archives is moving paper, and we're moving stuff. We're moving material culture, and we're all moving it to temporary locations. So it looks like we're going to be probably closed for two years, which is uh, forever in museum terms. It's not forever in museum planning. We plan years out, but it's, it's sad because the quilt exhibit won't open until we reopen. So it was supposed to open a year ago, and then of course COVID, and then it was supposed to open next month and then now of course it'll it will be the the show that our sort of inaugural show when we get to reopen and the best way to keep track of what's happening is to go to our website so just Google us, you know, you'll find the right website and each organization has an update on their website. Um, in July, we'll be starting to put several hundred that go um, artifacts online so that we'll get, we, we want to have several thousand op- objects online by the end of the year. And so we're trying to get our collections visible to the public that way. Also our education department, we get, we get 15,000 school kids through a year in a normal year. And this is a big hole for main schools right. to not have access to the museum. So our education department has been putting some fantastic stuff online, workshops for kids, work things for. Do you have and a teachers. portal
0: for main teachers to go to?
1: Yeah, there is. If you if you check out the website, there's some really good information. There's right now there's a new a whole new segment that is all about about pandemics and Mm. the ones in the past as well as now. And then they're also working on one which is about incarceration and freedom. And Mm. that's gonna be very, very interesting. And that of course ties in with our whole Malaga collection um, from the Malaga Island to the African-American mixed race community that was evicted from their their homes in 1911. That will get tied into that. Definitely check it out. So we've been putting a lot of stuff online for people
0: turning to your own work, when and where can we get your book?
1: I would urge you to contact your local bookseller. The title is Maine Quilts. And I had a different, it had a different title originally because, you know, how people are historians are with the colon. We've got to have a colon and a title, you know. (laughs) So it used to be called, used to be called Comfort and Community and then yada, yada, yada. So it turns out that now you're going to start seeing books that have just sort of a two word summary of what's in them, because that's how the algorithm finds them. So if you just Google main quilts and maybe my name, if you're either way, you'll, you'll find it.
0: What's but, the press? Um, I would,
1: it's Down East.
0: Oh, great. Okay. So yeah. Down East press. Okay. Down East.
1: So basically any, I would please talk to your local bookstores. I'm, I know they can order it for you and it'll be available probably by May 1st.
0: Okay, excellent. And friends of the show already know that if you follow us on Twitter at Mainly History, we post links to all of the books that are discussed on each episode, especially books written by our guests. And so that will be be up there as well. Thank you. Finally, last question. What's going on that your colleagues or or somebody else that you know is up to that you want to promote? Books or exhibits or or something else that we should check out?
1: Sure. It's been a really good year for quilt shows, for sure. So there's a show right now. I mentioned earlier that um, people who are sort of nationally known from Maine were quilters. There's a a woman named Wendy Caton-Reed, who's from Bath. And she has a blog called The Constant Quilter because she definitely is the constant quilter. If you've ever heard of an artist named uh, Father Paul Plant, he did a four-inch, he had a physical meditation. He did every day a four-inch square painting um, in pastels. She's, she does that. She does every morning, she spends an hour or so quilting when she first gets up in the morning. And she does amazing work. And she has a show, uh, a one woman show down at the New England Quilt Museum. It will be up through May. It just opened in March. So it will be open for people to check out. And that's very exciting. And then I'm working on a project with a colleague from, who's actually the curator of the New England Quilt Museum and Pam Weeks. And she and I are working on that wonderful collection, uh, that sort of wonderful collection of, of quilts from Cumberland and all Cumberland County quilts. And we'll be having that. We're gonna be making that into an article, in a peer reviewed journal pretty soon. And then we're thinking about a book for that as well. And she has a book on potholder quilts that's coming out in December. So there's a lot of New England quilts and Maine quilts in, um, happening right now.
0: Great. Laura Labar, thanks so much.
1: Thanks for having me, Ian. This was great.
0: That's our show. So you don't miss out on all the latest excitement. And for links to the books mentioned in our discussion, follow us on Twitter, at Mainly History. Join us next time to discuss the Penobscot language with one of the language masters who has done so much to preserve it continues to be a key part of a revitalization of the Penobscot language in Maine today. That's next time on Mainly History.